0: Uh, to the second session, if you want to grab some seconds um, or another drink or something or coffee, please feel free. Um, and we'll just get things going. I'd like to start off by welcoming everybody who's here for a very first time. I can see that at least a third of the room are here for the for, for the first set for their first session today. So a big hand of applause to you. And. Um, uh, it can be uh, if you haven't attended uh, a dinner discussion series with us before, you might find the whole thing a little bit intimidating. You might even be wondering, how did I get myself here? What possessed me to be here tonight? Um, but uh, don't you worry about that. I sometimes feel that way, like I do right now. Um, and we just want you to sit back, relax. You know, you had some dinner. If you're not, if you want to have some more, please help yourself. Um, and then, uh, and we'll get going. There'll be a short talk now for like uh, 20, 25 minutes or so, um, and then we'll launch into our discussions and we'd really welcome you to just be yourself during the discussions and uh, just say uh, whatever you know, you you, know, you want to say, whatever is is, um, is meaningful to you. So last week we uh, the topic was, Is Faith Irrational? Um, and we talked a little bit about how um, how faith can be rational or irrational, and what the differences are between those uh, between those two things. Um, this week, we're going to address probably one of the uh, uh, one one of the hardest um, things for people to grasp, which is why does God allow suffering? In fact. Suffering is probably the most frequently raised objection to the Christian faith. In every generation, in every family, everywhere across the globe, there is some element of suffering. And the distribution and degree of suffering seem to be completely irrational. They can be on a global scale with... Things like wars and natural disasters—earthquakes, tsunamis, drought, famine—they can be on a community scale, like the Sandy Hook shooting, December 14th, 2012, where innocent children going to school are murdered. They can be systematic to into those communities, like Canada's residential schools, that went from 1876 to—can you believe it? 1996, they can be like the attack on the World Trade Center where 3,000 people died, 346 of which were firefighters trying to help others. It can be on a personal level, completely inseparable from our earthly existence, says Pope John Paul II. And it exists in an endless variety of forms, bereavement, sickness, disability, broken relationships, unhappy marriages, involuntary singleness, depression, loneliness, abject poverty, persecution, unemployment, injustice, fierce temptation, disappointment. No human being is immune. C.S. Lewis says, If God were good he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. C.S. Lewis is very eloquently stating the problem of a Judeo-Christian God. This doesn't exist for every God or every concept of God, and I completely respect your concept of God, whatever it may be. But this certainly applies to anyone who believes in an all-powerful God who is also all-good. If there is an all-powerful God who is all-good, how could he possibly allow people to suffer so much? Let's look at four overlapping insights. Freedom of choice, that God works through our sufferings. That God doesn't leave us alone in our sufferings, but joins us. And that he more than compensates for our sufferings, even while we're in them. Let's start from the beginning. In the beginning, God created the world. As this is, of course, I'm going to share with you my concept of God. The concept of God that is sort of accepted in Christian faith. Again, completely respecting your own. God created the world. And he created it void of evil. He created it completely good. And we also see that when God restores the world at the very end of the Bible, he also makes it completely good. Void of all suffering and death. So all suffering is a result of sin. Either directly or indirectly. And this sin, somehow, again, according to your, you know, um, won't go too much deeply into it, but entered into the world through the result of the freedom of choice of two characters, Adam and Eve. And he created this world, and us, and this freedom of choice, because he loves us. So, C.S. Lewis says that there can be no freedom without choice, and he puts it like this. It would no doubt have been possible for God to remove by miracle the results of the first sin ever committed by a human being. But this would not have been much good unless he was prepared to remove the results of the second sin and of the third, and so on forever. If the miracle ceased, then sooner or later we might have reached our present lamentable situation. If they did not, then a world thus continually underpropped and corrected by divine interference would have been a world in which nothing important ever depended on human choice, and in which choice itself would soon cease from the certainty that one of the apparent alternatives before you would lead to no results and was therefore not really an alternative. In plain English, this is what C.S. Lewis is saying. You decide to buy a car. You want to buy a BMW 3 Series. So you go to the BMW dealership. You choose the 3 Series that you want with the trim that you want. You sign the paperwork. They do the credit check and all this other stuff. And they hand you the keys and the car is yours. You go out into the lot and you press the unlock button and the lights blink on a Chrysler and you walk back in and you say I'm so sorry I think you made a mistake. (coughs) They give you another set of keys you walk out you press the button and it's a Chrysler all over again you say this dealership doesn't know squat. You leave next day you go to a different dealership and you go and you you sign all the paperwork and you go through all the the, the rigmarole of it all and you take the keys and you go to the car and guess what? It's a Chrysler Forgive me, the same Chrysler. No decision you make actually changes the consequence. Because when you make a decision, someone interferes and changes the consequences. Then there really isn't any freedom of choice. And pretty quickly, you will just submit to either driving a Chrysler or taking the bus. So, Human freedom leads to to inevitable consequences. In Christianity, we believe that God created the world with physical laws, such as gravity, and other laws which are equally as ubiquitous as as gravity as moral laws. And when we break those laws, things happen. If I take a glass and pick it up and drop it, it will break. We don't typically call that punishment from God. We just call it a natural consequence of natural laws. In the same framework of belief, it is believed that God created the world all good with freedom of choice, with natural, moral, and spiritual laws. And when we break those laws, natural consequences to those laws happen. Now, sometimes... Sometimes, occasionally, ever so occasionally, God actually goes out of his way to use divine discipline. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later as well. We find this in examples in the Bible, such as in Genesis chapter 6 with the story of Noah, where it says that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of his thoughts was evil all the time. His heart was filled with pain. God says, let me start from scratch. And he makes the world again. Sodom and Gomorrah in the New Testament. Hananiah and Sapphira. If these names mean anything to you, that's great. And if they don't, it simply says that occasionally, ever so occasionally, and you can probably count them on your two hands, God actually intervenes to restore but in the process has to undo some of our doing. It's very important, incredibly important, beyond any shadow of a doubt, important to stress that suffering is not perceived in Christianity as a product or a consequence or a punishment of our actions. In fact, Job's friends, this guy in the Old Testament, Job, who gets put through the ringer of trials, his friends spend about 38 chapters of that book telling him that all of this is his fault. And him telling them, no, it isn't. I know, 38 chapters saying what I just said to you in a sentence, right? But finally, God answers his friend and tell, friends and tells them, you're wrong. This wasn't Job's fault. This was to reveal something about me and about Job. Jesus' disciples are walking by a blind man who is begging, and they ask him, did this man sin or his parents sin that he was born blind? Jesus answers them, neither this man sinned nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God may be glorified in him. Another time they ask Jesus, a tower fell in a nearby city and crushed a whole bunch of people. Was that because they didn't repent? And he said, no, but if you don't likewise repent, maybe something like that will happen to you. (laughs) So Jesus is calling us to look inward. And although I'm clearly saying that suffering is not a consequence of our personal sin, but rather corporate sin, and we'll talk a little bit more about that just briefly, it is still really appropriate in moments of suffering to look inward and to see if there's anything worth changing. Why? Because materialism and the, f- and the frills of this life make us kind of a little bit insensitive to su- certain things about ourselves. Certain things that maybe could use a little bit of changing. But suffering somehow comes and rings the bell of reality and can give us an opportunity that we wouldn't otherwise have to do a little inventory of what's really going on inside. But there is a major danger of coupling the concept of suffering with the, comp- with, the, with, the, with the concept of self-assessment and use that as a way of telling other people that their suffering is because they're bad people. That is certainly not what I'm saying or what I'm suggesting that you do. Suffering can also be very much so a cause of other people's freedom, not just our own. Much of the suffering in the world, estimated up to 95% of it, is due to other people's choices. War, starvation, greed, hatred, murder, adultery, theft, sexual abuse, unloving parents, reckless and drunken driving, slander, unkindness, selfishness of any kind, one or the other. They all come down to choices people make that hurt other people. And this brings us to this concept of a fallen world. All of our choices collectively make up what we are doing. Right now, I am speaking, and you are listening. If I subtract myself from this group, then the group is silent. If I'm part of this group, then the group is not silent then there is sound, there is noise, there there are words, there's a talk going on, right? So, although you are silent and I am speaking, what I do is affecting you. There's an example I really love about this that really tells the story. There is the largest living organism on on the face of the earth, or thought to be, are the Colorado or sometimes called Utah aspen trees. These are seedlings that grow roots from under the ground and pop up other trees elsewhere. There are whole forests that are one single living organism. And if you kill one, or if one gets sick with termites or other insects or so on, all the trees in an entire forest can rot. Though they may seem to be individual, separate trees, they certainly are not. And they are affected one by the other. So where's the silver lining in all of this? The silver lining is simply that God works through suffering. He doesn't leave us alone in it. It's never good in and of itself. And that's certainly not what I'm saying. But what what, what we are saying